Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Uh, good to see so many of you. Thank you for coming and uh, spending this day with us. We're excited to uh, glorify and celebrate um, God and all that he has done for us as a people as we celebrate the fact that we're four years old today. Being four years old means we're very young, and being very young means uh, one of the realities of being young, whether it's as a church or as an organization or just as a, an individual, is uh, you really lack wisdom. You're really uh, foolish in many ways. And so we have been looking uh, at the book of Proverbs for the last eight or nine weeks, and we're going to do so until we get all the way to Christmas, uh, just asking what does it mean if the book of Proverbs is written to help the people of God become wise, and if we need to be wise, what does it mean uh, you know, for us to, to live with wisdom? Now, you might be questioning the wisdom of of choosing a Sunday where the younger children are still in the service to talk about the issue of sex and beauty. I was concerned about that. Uh, and yet, I just couldn't get away from this is where God has us. It just, God, you know, the lot is in the lap of the Lord, right? And so is the sermon schedule. So my main concern was there are going to be kids in here. And then I talked to Terry Henderson yesterday, and he reminded me that the thing I probably should be most concerned about is the number of couples who won't be able to take communion because I'm talking about sex and beauty this morning. That, that did not get the laugh that I thought it would. Golly, I tried. I even tried, you're funnier than I am, and I thought if I said, oh, you don't remember saying that, okay. I didn't have a tape recorder on me. Nevertheless, uh, here we are, okay? Now, uh, and, and if you want to know, any, if you want to have any idea how the sermon's going to go this morning, we've typically had a lady read, and the lady who was supposed to read this morning came to me and said, I, 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 can't, I can't read that passage of scripture in public. So we really are, we really are ashamed of our nakedness. I can, I've never been naked and not ashamed, okay, in my whole life. Never. And the Bible says that's the reality. We are ashamed of our, so these are issues that are difficult for us to talk about because there's just a shame that's attached to them. And yet, somehow, in the gospel, we've got to get free enough to be able to have a, have a firm conversation about it, okay? Now, Wisdom has been been defined by us as as we've been talking through the book of Proverbs as competency with regard to the complex realities of life. It's being in touch with reality. That means it's knowing how things work, knowing how things are, being able to problem solve towards solutions in the vast majority of life situations where the moral rules don't apply. In other words, what we've said, just to make sure we're all on the same page, is it's not enough to be good and not bad. It's, it's good to be good and not bad, but it's not enough to be good and not bad or right and not wrong because there's a third category. We also need to be wise because the line between right and wrong is fuzzy. You know, to go back a couple of weeks, is it right or is it wrong to make plans? Proverbs says it depends, right? Is it right or is it wrong to aggressively save money for the future? Again, the answer in Proverbs is a little ambiguous. It depends. You need wisdom. And so every week we're taking a different subject and looking to God for wisdom on that subject from the book of Proverbs. This morning we're going to talk about sex and physical beauty. Proverbs has a lot to say about sexual temptation. One of the dominant literary features and devices towards the beginning of the book is the juxtaposition between lady wisdom. Wisdom is is feminized in the book. Lady Wisdom and the character that the, the writer of Proverbs calls the adulteress. And so there's this contrast. Proverbs was written to young men 
And in writing to young men, there's this choice that is put before young men, either to walk in the way of lady wisdom or to walk according to the path of the adulteress. Uh, And so the device there is just because the book of Proverbs has a lot to say about why we need to be wise. And if you think of our culture and how sexually obsessed we are in our culture, I think you can agree with me that these are important things for us to talk about that we might be wise uh, towards them. Okay, so let's read this passage of Scripture that will cause me to probably blush, and you also, but it's, I mean, this should amaze us that this is in the Word of God. Okay? Uh, Miscellaneous Proverbs from the book of Proverbs are going to read together as we come and talk about this topic this morning. They're on the screen behind me. They're also printed for you in your worship folder. It would be really hard for you to follow along in your Bible, so I would just encourage you to look one of those two places. Okay? Let's read together from the book of Proverbs. My son... If you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. And and see what the consequences of this is? So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth, and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death, and her paths to the departed, none who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed And rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. A gracious woman gets honor and violent men get riches. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. Three things are too wonderful for me. Four I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky. The way of a serpent on a rock. The way of a ship on the high seas. And the way of a man with a virgin. But this is the way of an adulteress. She eats, she eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done no wrong. This is God's word. Now, in order to be wise, in regard to the topic before us this morning, I want you to see what we have to do. My out, the outline that I've provided for you is going to be very little help because things changed as the week went on, and I apologize. It happens every now and then, in particular with these sensitive subjects that typically don't get sorted out until Friday night or Saturday. Thankfully, thankfully I finished early because if it was dependent upon me getting up this morning after the debacle last night, of my football team, it could have been bad. But here's what we got to do. We have to, in order to be wise, we have to avoid the extremes that you find in our culture of, on the one hand, undervaluing, and on the other hand, overvaluing sexual attraction and physical beauty. So there's a temptation either or at the same time to both undervalue and to overvalue sex and beauty, and we need to avoid those two extremes. So we're just going to talk about what they are and how we can avoid them, and then secondly, What is the power of the gospel that can come into our lives to help us to avoid the two extremes that really cause us to lack wisdom? 
So there are two extremes, undervaluing and overvaluing sex and physical beauty. And how does the gospel really kind of carve a third way for us to avoid these two extremes? That's what we're going to talk about this morning, okay? So let's look together. First, let's have avoiding the extremes of undervaluing and overvaluing sexual attraction. Okay, reading Proverbs, one of the things I'm learning is wisdom is moderation. Wisdom is avoiding extremes. So last week, in regards to money, we read that the, that the writer of Proverbs says, the sage says, give me neither poverty nor riches. So see, extreme poverty and extreme riches, he says, are both very treacherous. And so the wisdom of the sage is aim for moderation. Not too little, not too much, somewhere in the middle, right? A few, you know, a few weeks ago we talked about planning. You can underplan, you can overplan. Again, wisdom is moderation. Plan, but don't plan to control your life. Don't plan exhaustively. And so with sexual attraction and physical beauty, it's the same thing. The warning of Proverbs is that we would avoid the extremes of making too little of it and of making too much of it. What do I mean? Okay, let's start with the the extreme of undervaluing sex and physical beauty and attraction, okay? On the one hand, Proverbs makes a big deal out of sexual attraction and physical beauty and warns of making too little of it. And, And the verses are really almost embarrassing to read there in Proverbs 5, 15 through 18, right? It's explicit. I mean, it's, it's, it's very, very erotic. And of course, the cistern well is the image of female sexuality, and the fountain is the image of male sexuality, and you can explain that to your children whenever you feel comfortable doing that. But adults, you, I think you, you, know, you can follow me in those things. And, and so what you have here is there's this incredible positive view of sexuality and marriage. I mean, there, I'm a prude. I get really, I get embarrassed and red face. There is no prudishness in these verses whatsoever. I mean, Proverbs says to married couples, rejoice in one another, delight in one another, be intoxicated is actually the word he uses, in love towards one another. And I was, you know, so there's this positive view of marriage and sexuality within marriage, so much so that the the Westminster Confession of Faith in exegeting the seventh commandment, do not, do not commit adultery, says that one of the duties that is required of the seventh commandment is that men and women would show conjugal love towards one another. The church for centuries, the Pur- and Puritans get a bad rap, by the way, because the Puritan church uh, would exercise church discipline on spouses if there was not sufficient sexual intimacy between the spouses. All the men are saying, mm-hmm. Interesting. Right? I mean, this was a big enough issue, uh, and there is a positive command toward the spouses to move towards one another, you know, in physical intimacy. Okay? Positive view of, of marriage and sexuality. Negatively, though, on the negative side, Proverbs is also full of strong warnings about sex outside of marriage, which is particularly graphic in Proverbs 30, down at the bottom, 18 through 20, where Agar describes the wonders of creation, the soaring of an eagle. Do you see this in verse 18? The soaring of the eagle in the sky and the way a ship gracefully glides across the sea and above all of these images of beauty, human sexuality, right? Beauty and wonder and all these things. And then suddenly out of nowhere comes the contrast in verse 20. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. And that's just gross. It's disgusting. I mean, it's the opposite of beauty and wonder. And that's the point. 
I mean, that's a picture of sex as appetite, sex as consumption. There's no wonder in it. There's not, you know, nothing about it mimics the way the eagle soars through the sky. Right? And what's Proverbs teaching us about sexuality here? We have to kind of dig deep, okay? And we're going to have to trace out some trajectories throughout the Scripture as we walk through these passages. But here, I think, is the summary teaching of what Proverbs means by all of the metaphors and the images it uses in these verses, is that sex is covenantal by design. There's something about sexual intimacy that it is covenantal, not consumer. It's not consumerism, it's covenantal by design. And you see, in a consumer relationship, you're there for the product and not for the person. And your needs and your wants and your desires are more important than the other person's. And so a consumer relationship, the whole relationship is based upon the other person, the vendor, meeting your expectations. And if they don't, then you're free to go and find another vendor who will. You take your business elsewhere. Covenantal relationships are different. They're commitment-based. That means that the relationship is an end in itself. You stay in the relationship, whether your needs are being met or not. The goal is not to get your needs met. The goal is to love the other person. And what's changing in our culture that we have to be aware of is, whereas 50 years ago, the lines were drawn very clearly, right? You had a consumer relationship with your uh, grocery store uh, or a consumer relationship with the plumber that you hired to come fix the toilet in your house. But marriage and most family and even friendship relationships were much more covenantal. But now what's happening, sociologists have, have, have observed in our culture, is the market mentality the consumer mindset has begun to creep into all of our relationships, even marriage and sexual relationships. And what it's led to is it's led to the commodification of sex. Sex as a commodity. Sex as a business transaction. Sexual intimacy with no personal intimacy. Casual sex. And this is what I mean by the undervaluing of sex and beauty. Not, in other words, not realizing the reach the depth of meaning involved in sexual intimacy. Because, see, biblically, biblically, when the Bible talks about sex, sex is not a means of self-gratification or self-expression. It is a radical, deeply personal means of self-donation. It is an act of love and self-giving, not conquest. Where you make yourself vulnerable to the other person. And that is why the Bible, from beginning to end, says that sexual intimacy should only happen inside of marriage. That is, it's covenantal, and therefore inside a covenantal structure where each person has committed their whole self to the other exclusively for the rest of their life. Otherwise, you reduce sex to a commodity, to an appetite, and there won't be any soaring. Instead, it will produce emotional and spiritual anguish and destruction, breakdown, See, if you undervalue sex by trying to turn it into a commodity, it will destroy you. That's the teaching of Proverbs. And if you want an application of that, I mean, just think about our culture's obsession with pornography. I mean, what pornography is the ultimate expression of sex as a commodity. Sex with no, with no relational intimacy, with, no, with no, no covenant, you know, needed at all. And it's just destroying lives because it's, it's outside of the design of God. And so, on the one hand, we need to be careful of the, of the danger of undervaluing sex and physical beauty. But at the same time, what happens, and it's fascinating in our culture, 
The second extreme we have to avoid is the tendency to, at the same time, overvalue sexual attractiveness and physical beauty. And for this, I want you to look at Proverbs eleven sixteen, right in the middle there. It's all jumbled up, so it's kind of hard to see, but you can see the, the, the scripture references out to the right. Proverbs eleven sixteen and Proverbs eleven twenty two. And let's start in uh, verse 22, okay? Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. And the illustration here, it, this is, we're talking about overvaluing sexual attractiveness and physical beauty. So the illustration is you see a beautiful ring, and you reach out to grab it and to pull it to yourself, but the problem is eventually it gets close enough to you where you realize it's attached to a pig, right? And nose rings were popular and still are in Middle Eastern culture. They were a sign of wealth and were thought to enhance a woman's beauty. They were sexy, right? Now you, yeah. And nevertheless, they were, it was a turn-on. Like a belly button ring or a tattoo would be today, right? But this ring is in a pig's snout, not in a beautiful woman's nose. And pigs are filthy. They eat slop and they roll around in their own excrement. They're nasty. And again, the sage is using this metaphor to make a point. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. And the summary teaching is just this. If, if you look at someone's physical attractiveness and value them for their outward appearance and pay no attention to their inner beauty and character, you're a fool because it's the inside that counts. According to the Bible, true beauty is inner beauty. God looks upon the heart, we're told in 1 Samuel, right? God sees, not the things we see. You remember the story of David being um, anointed as king, King David in the Old Testament. His older, his older brothers, who were much bigger and stronger and handsome, handsomer than he was, and the prophet Samuel's there, and pro- the Samuel sees with, with eyes that only see external things, and he sees Eliab, David's brother, and he's so impressive, and he's attractive, and he's strong, and he says, surely this is the Lord's anointing. And God says, Samuel, I don't see what you see. I see not the outward physical appearance. The eyes of the Lord look upon the heart. God sees the inside. And so, our culture tends to work against this and cause us not to focus on what is truly important on the inside, but again, to focus on things that are external uh, and, and not nearly as important. And what I want to say is, and this might get me in a little trouble this morning, but I want you to know, both men and women are guilty of this. In Proverbs 11.22 is a slam on men. It, the habitual objectifying of women and evaluating them solely by the way they look which is destructively foolish. Men tend to see only what is external and evaluate women on their physical appearance and give little thought to and place little value on whether they are internally beautiful or piggish. And we were talking about this in our preaching meeting this week. It seems the only compliment that counts anymore is, is whether the person you are with is hot. It drives me insane. And if I was a lady, I would be terribly offended. But if you want to compliment your wife now, you don't, you don't say, you know, she, she, is, she is gentle and kind. You, say she's, you have to say she's hot. Because that's the only thing that matters. But the women are guilty of it too. 11.16 is, is a slam on the women. Because what, what the commentators struggle with 
In 11.16, do you see that there? Let's read it. A gracious woman gets honor and a violent violent man get riches. And the commentators struggle to translate the adjective there in 11.16. The ESV says it's a a, a gracious woman. The NIV says a kind-hearted woman. And it's unclear whether the word refers to physical beauty or inner beauty, but the ambiguity really preaches well, so I'm going with it. And what the... (laughs) And what the verse means is men use coercive power to get prestige and honor from people, but women sometimes use their physical beauty to get honor. Right? To get people to notice them. To get power over men or other women. And so there's a particular temptation women face. That is to tie their self-regard and their self-esteem to their physical appearance. And the result is... Therefore, to spend all of their time and energy and money trying to beautify their bodies because what gets you honor in our culture is not hidden beauty of the heart, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit in 1 Peter 3, 4. What gets you honor is being hot. So what happens is, is the male idolization of sex and, fem- and the female idolization of physical beauty and sexual attractiveness, different forms, same problem, actually reinforce one another, fuel one another, and so it gets worse, and it gets worse, and it gets worse over time. And I would just ask you to think, how are we defining beauty for our sons and particularly our daughters? And how are we creating Habits of behavior that work against being wise in choosing the right kinds of people to marry. What should young men be looking for in a woman? What should young women be looking for in a man? I mean, it's all, we, are, we are off the reservation on these things. Because we're a culture that, it's ironic, but we have undervalued sex and physical beauty, but at the same time overvalued it. And we've typically gone to both of these extremes or one or the other. And it's really created a lack of wisdom on our part. And so we need then to ask, then how does the gospel help us then in each of these directions to avoid the very thing we're being told by Proverbs we should try to keep away from? Let's tackle the first extreme first, okay? The undervaluing of sex. How do we correct what we've talked about, this undervaluing of sexual desire so that we can be wise? And there are two steps. We have to first discover the real problem, and then secondly, imaginatively and powerfully apply the gospel solution to the problem. And the real problem here, if you look at verse 16 of chapter 2, 2.16, and then down in 5.20. It's going to take me a minute to get to this, but we'll, we'll work to it together. The real problem, what's really going on here, if you see there twice, the adulteress in these verses is referred to as the forbidden woman. The King James Version translates the word strange, or maybe even a better translation, the alien woman. Adultery is alien, is what the Bible's teaching. And it's alien to the true nature of sexual intimacy. And so what what Proverbs is teaching us is to pursue a sexual relationship with a person you're not married to or who is married to someone else is behavior that is alien to your true nature. If you were to get in a rocket ship and go to Venus and when you landed you stepped out of the rocket and without an oxygen mask of some kind inhaled the air, which is 96% carbon dioxide, and 4% nitrogen, your lungs would literally explode or something. I don't know. Right? Something bad would happen. Right? I'm not really sure what it would look like, but I know it would be bad. 96% carbon dioxide, 4% nitrogen. 
you would immediately suffocate. Why? Because you're in an environment that doesn't fit your nature. Your lungs require oxygen to breathe in, and they expel CO2. So on Venus, your lungs won't work. If you try to breathe on Venus, you will experience breakdown and death. What Proverbs is saying is when you commit adultery, you are violating the moral spiritual order that works the same way as the physical order does, and it leads to disintegration and breakdown and death. And so look at Proverbs 5 and and even Proverbs 7, where the writer of Proverbs says, as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as the bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life For many a victim the adulteress has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, to hell, going down to the chambers of death. Some pretty strong words. And what Proverbs is saying is is adultery is wrong because it violates God's design for sex and marriage. Homosexuality is wrong because it violates God's design for sex and marriage. Christians don't hate homosexual people. But there's a design that, that's unavoidable. God has designed sex to work a certain way. And all of these, these, these ways that we are trying to subvert that are, are, are contrary to God's design. And so to engage in them is like trying to breathe oxygen on Venus. All things were created by God and for God. That includes sex. And that means that God has a design for sex, and that design is that sexual intimacy only occur within a relationship where two people have made themselves vulnerable to one another through public commitments and vows, and that needs to happen before you physically become vulnerable to somebody. And the reason from the Bible is just this, and here's where we've got to trace this out, okay? When you engage in sexual intercourse with someone, you become one with that person. And it's more than just a physical oneness. There's a spiritual component to it as well. So in 1 Corinthians 6.16, the Apostle Paul says, whoever's joined to a prostitute becomes one with her. And so in every sexual encounter, the two become one. There's no such thing as casual sex. And so sex is meant to be a physical expression of the physical, emotional, relational, spiritual oneness a man and a woman experience with one another in marriage. It's for marriage. One step further. Not only has God designed sexual intimacy for marriage, but God has designed marriage so that the oneness between a man and a woman experienced in marriage points to the oneness that we are made to experience with God. So in Ephesians 5, Paul is talking about marriage and he says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says something completely shocking. He says, this is a profound mystery But I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church. And also in that passage in 1 Corinthians 6 that I quoted there a minute ago, Paul says, he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So follow the logic. This is the remedy for our undervaluing of sex and beauty. God intends a desire for sexual intimacy to point you to a desire for marital intimacy, which should ultimately point you to a desire for intimacy with Christ. The real problem is a God problem. The real desire is a desire for intimacy with God. So G.K. Chesterton famously said, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. What he meant was that in all of our sinful sexual exploits, we are ultimately looking for something that transcends sex itself. 
Pascal said it this way. He said, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. All all the theologians and and Christian writers have talked about this. C.S. Lewis wrote about it this way in his essay, The Weight of Glory. He said, we all live with a powerful spiritual longing that comes from the feeling that we're outside, that we've been repelled or exiled or estranged or ignored. And we long to get back in. And here's how he puts it. He says, we do not want merely to see beauty. We We want something else which we can hardly put into words. We want to be united with the beauty we see. Listen to this language, to pass into it to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door, but the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. That's pretty erotic language, to pass into beauty, to receive it into ourselves. But this is the real problem. See, this is why sexual desire has such power over our lives. Because it's, it's a God problem. Sexual intimacy is meant to point you to the desire for marital intimacy, which is meant to point you to the desire for intimacy with God. If that's true, then I want to stop for just a minute. I know we're getting close on time, but I want to say then, if if that's really what's going on in the heart, then the way we attempt to fight against sexual temptation has to change. I mean, if, if what is going on, there's a heart idle issue where we're trying, instead of turning to God for the intimacy we've been created to enjoy with him, we're trying to co-opt that and, 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 and satisfy that desire with, with something that is as small as sexual intimacy with somebody else, uh, then, then we've got to know that those are the hard issues that are going on so we can do battle against it. Uh, the way we typically teach young men especially to do battle against sexual temptation is really unwise and doesn't work because it doesn't take into consideration what's really going on. The best illustration of this I know is from a book I read called The Year of Living Biblically, a guy named A.J. Jacobs who decided for a whole year he was going to live, uh, literally live according to the commands of the Bible. So whatever the Bible told him to do, he was going to do. Uh, He has a particular passage where he talks about sexual temptation. He says, okay, here are my four strategies. He developed four strategies for battling sexual temptation. Number one, strategy number one, think of the woman as out of your league. Okay? Number two, number two, think of her as your mother. He says, which is more effective but also more disturbing than strategy number one. (laughs) Number three. Recite Bible passages to yourself. And number four, don't, do not objectify. So he tells a story. His friend, he's in the middle of thinking about these things. His friend invites him to a New York City fashion show where he tried the first two and they helped some, okay? So he's walking around seeing all these models and he's, it's a Jewish fashion show. So he was thinking it would be pretty lame, but then actually there were very attractive women there. And so he's doing the first two and it's not really working for him. Then the fashion show actually begins and, and the heat gets turned up so so he resorts to uh, number three, recite Bible, Bible passages. And here's how he puts it. He says, it worked in a way. My brain was so busy with its recital project, it didn't have time to focus on the dark-haired model wearing an extra-large rubber band around her chest. So maybe it didn't work very well for him. The meaning of the passage is almost beside the point. I could have probably recited the lyrics to the Mikado and gotten similar benefit. It's all about keeping your mind distracted. Then it goes really bad for him. His friend introduces him to a model who's drunk and has a very unique fetish. She... Uh, likes the side locks Orthodox Jews wear, which he's been growing out for a year because he's doing everything the Bible tells him to. So this lady comes up to him and says, I'm drunk, and it gets really bad. And he says, okay, here I try out strategy number four, do not objectify. 
So I look at Fetish Girl and think about everything but her body, her Israeli childhood, what might be her favorite novel, whether she owns a PC or a Mac, but she won't stop looking at me. This isn't working, he says. So in a panic, I switch to the less evolved but more efficient method. Think of her as your mother. I feel nauseated. Victory. Right? (laughs) This is how... (laughs) So he's just trying to... He's trying to work through these things, and it's just fascinating. But if you look at that, what, we're, what, what the Bible's teaching us about sex is that may work for the moment, but that is not a wise way to attack the struggle for sexual purity. Because the issues involved, that, that, that in itself is an undermining of sexual intimacy and beauty. Because what the Scripture would teach is that sex is a parable of the gospel. I mean, the two becoming one flesh, penetrating one another, is a living parable of the promise of our union with Christ by the Holy Spirit. Sex is a foretaste of the complete ecstasy and joy of total union with Jesus that's offered to us in the gospel. We're on the outside of the door and we desperately want to get back in. The promise of the gospel is that because of the work of Christ, by the power of the Spirit, we get back in. We can have what our hearts long for so powerfully. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. You can know God so intimately in Jesus that the heart longings behind your sexual urges and desires can be satisfied. That's the work the gospel's got to do in your heart. But I've got to hurry because we need to be done. Lastly, the second extreme then, the overvaluing of sex and beauty, the obsession with physical appearance. So how do we get on the offensive against this extreme? Again, we have to understand the real problem and then appropriate the gospel solution imaginatively and forcefully to it. And for this, I want to hone in on just one word. If you look at 11.16 again, honor, which is that word, a beautiful woman gets honor. A gracious woman gets honor. That word means significance or beauty or worth or weight. It's the Hebrew word kavod. A beautiful woman gets honor. And so what I want to say here is the reason we are so concerned with outward physical beauty is because we don't like what we look like on the inside. And if you go back to the story of the first man and the first woman in the garden, you'll see the response to the shame of sin is always to cover ourselves, to try to beautify ourselves outwardly because we know we've lost what we once had as far as beauty inwardly. We're so concerned with physical beauty because we know we need a beauty, that we need a righteousness that can beautify us, but we feel dirty and ugly because of sin. So what we need is the absolute assurance that we are loved and delighted in, and that's the only way we'll ever be free from the obsession over physical beauty and appearance. So what is the gospel solution? Let me close. It's right here in Isaiah 53, in our assurance of pardon. Isaiah 53 is about Jesus Christ. And look what it says about him. In verse 2, it says, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. And when Jesus is described in the Bible in his glory, it is always with words and images that are meant to highlight his beauty and his majesty. Uh, which is a word closely related to beauty, that word majesty. Jesus is the most beautiful being in existence. Listen to this. He's so radiant, right? His beauty and majesty and glory emanate from him with such intensity that in Revelation 21, we're told that there will be no sun or moon in heaven because the radiance of his beauty will be the light we live by. And yet when Isaiah describes Jesus in his state of humiliation, he says he had no majesty. He had no beauty to draw our attention to himself. He lost his beauty. And the two words, it's interesting, he uses here 
in this verse in Isaiah 53 are the two words that are also used in Genesis to describe Rachel, one of the great beauties of the Bible, in contrast to her sister Leah. Rachel was gorgeous. She was shapely and she was beautiful. But Leah, her sister, was plain. And if you know the story, Jacob fell madly in love with Rachel. He had to have Rachel. He got tricked and ended up with Leah and then spent his... The rest of his life ignoring her and her children and doting on Rachel and her children. And eventually because he married Rachel eventually. And yet, and yet it was not Rachel, it was Leah. It was the ugly girl. It was the overweight girl. It was the unwanted girl that God chose to be the one through whom salvation would come to the earth. And when Messiah came, he came not as Rachel but as Leah. He came as the unrachel. He came in defiance of all of our worldly obsessions with sexual attractiveness and physical appearance. Why? Why? For a couple of reasons. First, to show us the nature of true beauty. Please, hear this sentence because I labored over it and I want it to come home to your heart. True beauty is not a perfect femme... I can't say it right. There you go. Satan, get behind me, Satan. Right? True beauty is not a perfect fit trim exterior, but a body misshapen and scarred by the demands of sacrificial love. But Jesus also was the most glorious, the most beautiful person in existence, and he emptied himself of his beauty, and he became ugly because it was the only way to make us beautiful. Jesus lost his beauty and became the ultimate person of character, who on the inside was gorgeous and on the outside wasn't. To die for us, not because we were beautiful, but to make us beautiful. In Ephesians 5, we're told that Jesus loved us and died for us to make us blameless and perfect without blemish. And if your faith is in Jesus Christ, then you're a beauty. Has that truth sunk down in your heart yet? See, when it does, that will be the end of your obsessing over physical appearance. The power of sexual attraction and physical beauty that leads to both extremes of undervaluing and overvaluing will be broken in your life. You'll finally be wise. But not only that, the real issue is it'll make you a better lover of people. You won't use people to gratify your own sinful desires. You won't judge people hollowly on the basis of their outward appearance. You will become someone who loves well, even in the area of sex and physical beauty. And that's the goal. But the remedy, the solution, is that we finally come in faith to the Lord Jesus and experience the kind of intimacy with him that can unravel and undo all of our unnatural, sinful cravings for intimacy uh, in ways that he says are destructive. And so it's fitting that we would come to this table this morning, and we need to pray to prepare our hearts to come. So can we pray together? Lord Jesus, uh, would you come now and heal our hearts of all of the deviant ways that we have tried to pursue uh, intimacy apart from intimacy with you? Would you come and would you do what you promised? As we take this, this bread and we put it into our bodies, we take you and we bring you into ourselves. Uh, would you do what you promised to do every time we come around this table and that is meet with us, commune with us, that our hearts might be healed, that we might become wise, and that we might love well. Uh, this is our hope and our desire, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, a note before we dismiss. That is, uh, that in order to facilitate this many people eating, we would like for you to go along the sidewalk on the north side of, the, of, the, of Covenant Hall over there and enter in from the door, then there will be the food 
you know, you can get your food and, and find a place to sit. I guess it's first come, first serve with the seats inside so that you don't have to sit outside in the humidity. But nevertheless, there's a tent, and hopefully that helps. But please do that that way, and we'll form a line uh, like we did a year ago at our, at our particularization service. Uh, please stay. If you're here and, and, and you didn't bring anything, it's okay. There's plenty of food. Please stay and, and, and celebrate with us, okay? And I probably, I know, you know, uh, you know, Christian people get nodded up about the blessing every now and then, so why don't we go ahead and say a blessing so nobody, there's not any question about, do we say a blessing? Do we need not say a blessing? You know, how do we do that? So I'm just going to pray. Uh, Father, I do pray that as we uh, have lunch together that you would uh, come and, and, and be with us, that there would be celebration, but that we would eat and drink and remember and celebrate and repent and uh, befriend one another and, and commune with one another in a way that glorifies you. Would you be glorified in our celebration today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, make no mistake about it, I admire A.J. Jacobs for his mental gymnastics in trying to uh, wage war upon his heart in regards to sexual temptation. But what I want to say is, don't mistake what I'm saying. Where you do battle against uh, the temptations of sexual attractiveness and physical beauty, where you uh, shepherd your heart, uh, the way you become wise and gain victory in those areas is through the disciplines and the habits of gospel remembrance. Because only the gospel speaks to the real needs and, and, and desires of your heart. And so you have to take your heart to the gospel. And as you become more proficient, and as I become more proficient at doing that, we will see the power of sin broken in our lives. And so this, again, this benediction is one of those anchors where you can tie your heart Here is a remembrance of, yet again, the love that the Father has for you. Uh, If your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are a beauty. Uh, Rest in that. Anchor your, tie your life off to that truth. And receive this benediction as we uh, dismiss to go eat together. Then may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.